0: really glad you're here. If you consider yourself a visitor, we're especially glad to have you and I invite you to please stick around a little bit after the service so maybe we can get to know you a little bit better. Certainly appreciate the song service this morning and the prayers on my behalf and I pray that the message today will find a, a home in your heart that you'll consider it and apply it as you see you have the need. We're going to talk about Saul, King Saul to be specific today. You know, this is the very first king of Israel. Give you a little background on how this happened. Samuel had been a prophet of God and a judge over the land of Israel for virtually his whole life. He was getting really old. And he had some boys, three of them, I think, that are supposed to take his place, step up, and fill his shoes. And as he got older and older, the boys began to assume more and more responsibility. And the people came to Samuel and said, this isn't going to work. Your boys are not you. They're corrupt. They take bribes. They rule on favorable status for their friends. They're in this for what they can get for themselves, and we're not going to stand for it. You're going to have to get us a king. Well, that's right. Boys were corrupt. Was getting a king the right measure to take? Probably not. Samuel counseled against it. He... uh, told the Lord as he beseeched him in prayer that the people have rejected him. God said, no, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. But nevertheless, give them their king. And the Lord told Samuel he's going to find the man to step up and fill this role. That man happens to be Saul. Saul you look at First Samuel 9 and 2, we'll see a little bit of the background of Saul. He's the son of Kish. Now, Kish is a very wealthy landowner, merchant. He's very prosperous. Saul is a product of a very well-to-do household. He's one of those children of uh, many benefits. Samuel goes on to tell us that Kish had a son whose name was Saul, a choice young man, and a goodly, and there was none among the children of Israel goodlier person than he. Now, we don't use that word very often, do we? Goodly? That's not exactly a common word used in our vocabulary. We would probably say he was handsome. He's a very handsome young man. He... uh, He had everything going for him. He certainly had the upbringing he needed. He was well-educated. He was from a very prosperous family. He was the guy. And from his shoulders and upward, he was higher than any of the people. Now, that's pretty impressive. You know, if you just think about it, how many people do you know that stand head and shoulders taller than anybody else around? I suspect not very many. I mean, you know, we can look at professional athletes and and cite a few, but in our daily contact, there's probably not a lot. Uh, That means that uh, not only is he a good-looking young man, he's very Visible. Everybody knows who he is. When he walks into the room, he has presence. He's the kind of guy that people can look up to. He's the kind of guy that God chooses to fill this role. And we see in chapter 9 and 17 that God chose Saul... And then in chapter 10 and 1, we'll see that Samuel goes to Saul and anoints him with oil, and he is anointed king. There's something very interesting that happens after this. What do you think Saul did? He's just been anointed king. God selected him. Samuel's anointed him. Chapter 10, verse 22. Therefore they inquired of the Lord further if the man should come thither. And the Lord answered, Behold, he hath hid himself among the stuff. He wasn't exactly jumping at the idea of being king, was he? In fact, he wasn't impressed for that responsibility at all. He didn't want the visibility He didn't want the accolades. He didn't want the responsibility, probably. So he was just going to hide out and pretend like it didn't happen. But, of course, the people found him. But that's an additional reflection of this great physical specimen that stands head and shoulders above everybody else, and yet he doesn't want the recognition. He doesn't want to be seen as the king, as the leader. So he hides. He's a very meek and humble young man, and that's probably one of the reasons God chose him. Verse 23, And they ran and fetched him thence, and when he stood among the people, he was higher than any of the people from his shoulders upward. God chose Saul because of his personality, his demeanor, his stature, His presence, his background. He was the perfect specimen to assume the role of king in Israel. Now he's king. What did he do? You know, you'd think that somebody's just been anointed king would decide they'd probably need to build a palace. You know, I need to raise an army. I need to get some advisors and counselors around me to tell me how to deal with all these countries we're going to have to deal with and come up with ambassadors and programs and things to do. I probably need me a harem over here on the side. We need to start collecting all the pretty women in the, in the country. You know, all the things kings have and all they do. You think Saul did any of that? No. He went back home and went back to work in the family business hoping to just all settle down. He knew he was king. The people knew he was king. And, of course, that created a lot of distractors, didn't it? You know, Samuel, you've anointed us king. God's picked a man to be the king, and now he's hiding out. He's not a king. How's this guy going to lead us and defend us in anything? He won't even show his face to his people. What's he going to do when trouble comes? So yeah, there were a lot of folks who didn't like that. A lot of folks who didn't like Saul. They didn't think he was the man for the job. And now he's gone back home and he's just kind of hanging out doing what he's always done. But you know what? He didn't get to do that very long. You see, in the first year of his being king, the Amorites decided that they were going to move against one of the cities of Israel. Now I'm going to butcher this name. Jaberzil, and I know that's not right, but you get the idea. They had a tendency of raiding across the border because, let's face it, Israel doesn't have an army. It doesn't have any way to defend itself. It didn't even have a king. So the neighbors would just raid across the border. They'd plunder and pillage and steal the women and kill the men and take the livestock and the crops and do all the things that bad neighbors do. Well, except this time, the Amorites have shown up and they're determined they're going to take the whole city. It's nothing just a raid. They're fixing to take them. And they're either going to wipe them out. Or they're going to kill all the men. Take all the women and all the spoils. Or maybe they're just going to move into town. And take it over and expand the boundaries of their kingdom. We don't really know for sure what their plans were. But we do know this. The leaders of the town went out to talk to them. And... Said, so, look, you don't have to do this. We'll surrender. We will be your servants. We'll be your slaves. Just don't kill us. Just let us go on. Amorites, being the good folks that they were, said, Okay, we'll do that. But every man in town's gotta to pluck out his right eye and lay it down here at our feet so we can mock your God who can't defend you from anything. That didn't quite go over real well. They didn't jump at that opportunity. They said, You know, you need to give us a week to think about this. So they said, Okay, take a week. Because we're not going anywhere. In the the week, you hadn't agreed to do it. We're just going to move in key anyway. So they sent the word out to Saul that they needed help. Saul gets the word and decides he's king. He's got to help. So in Samuel devised a plan to raise an army. Because they don't have an army. And they get the message sent out to the whole land that we've got a problem here and you've got to show up and help. Oh, and by the way, if you don't, you're not going to have the opportunity to show up and help next time because you're not going to be here. Well, that was enough motivation to get the men of Israel to show up. 330,000 of them showed up. Now, of course, they still got a little problem because they're not an army. They're farmers. They're merchants. They tend vineyards. They raise crops. So they don't have any swords or shields or spears. All they've got are instruments of farming. Oh, axe and a mattox and a scythe and a sickle. And, you know, that's the armaments they've got. And now they're supposed to go against an army with that. Saul is not deterred. He divides the men into three companies. They attack the Amorites and they utterly destroy them. The destruction is so complete that not even two of the Amorites were able to escape together. There are a few stragglers that might have got away. But other than that, They were completely annihilated. How could that be? Well, God chose Saul. God's with Saul. And God gave the victory. Look at 1 Samuel 11, 12, and 13. And the people said unto Samuel, Who is he that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring them in that we may put them to death. So now they're after the detractors, aren't they? All those people that said Saul can't be king, he doesn't know what he's doing, he's not going to save us. Well, now then, the folks that were there for the great victory, now they're all ready to go after those guys. But what did Saul say in 13? And Saul said, there shall not a man be put to death this day, for today the Lord hath wrought salvation in Israel. Saul gave credit where credit was due, didn't he? He gave it to the Lord. The Lord brought him salvation. And now Saul shows mercy to those that were detractors. He's got a good heart. He's faithful. He's humble. And he's meek. And most importantly, he's chosen of God to do this job. Well, he takes a little clue from this thing with the Amorites and decides maybe he does need to have an army. So he raises an army of 3,000. Saul's going to be in charge of 2,000 of them, and he's going to give 1,000 of them to Jonathan, his son. And now they've got an army. So, you know, they've, they're putting together their forces and making spears and shields, which is quite a challenge for them because there were no metalsmiths in the country at this time. They were all farmers. They didn't have anybody to make shields and swords and spears, but they got on the ball and, and got it, got it going, they made it happen. And so we have the Philistines that do kind of what the Amorites used to do until they were annihilated. They tend to raid across the border, they take the spoils of the cities and towns and the border communities. They kill the men, steal all the livestock, steal the women, and just generally create havoc. Well, Jonathan takes his thousand-man army, and he decides he's going to end that reign of terror from one of these towns the Philistines have called Geba. And he takes his army over there, and he destroys them. He wipes them out. Which is probably a good thing. That way they're not going to be terrorized by that group anymore. However, if you look at First Samuel 13 and 5, the uh, Philistines kind of took offense at that. And what do we read here? And the Philistines gathered themselves together to fight with Israel. 30,000 chariots. Six thousand horsemen, six thousand cavalry, and an army of people in which the sand on the seashore would try to number its multitude. They can't even number them all. They came up and they pitched in mishmash between eastward unto Bethaven. This massive army the Philistines have put together to come take out Israel is now on their border. They're spread out across the whole country. Can you imagine what a sight that had to be to the Israelites? Scared the people to death. They started running for the hills. They were hiding in the hills, mountains, the thickets, the forest, caves, wherever they could find. They were trying to get out of there and get out of the way. And, of course, Saul has his army of 3,000. How do you think that's going to stack up against this massive army that the Philistines have showed up with? So he puts out the call again. He and Samuel, we need the volunteers to show back up. we got a little bigger job in front of us this time. And they show up. So they're there. But Samuel's left and left Saul there with this volunteer army. And they're sitting there. Unfortunately, they're sitting there looking at this massive Philistine army that's about to come at them. And this volunteer army is looking at them for not one day or two, but for seven days they sit there. And you can imagine what's going on between those two camps during that seven days. You know, a bunch of farmers with their pitchforks and scythes and sickles and a few axes. Looking at an army that's got thirty thousand chariots, a cavalry of six thousand. Yeah, that's uh probably pretty intimidating. And Saul notices that his volunteer army is starting to bleed away. Samuel told him, You wait seven days, and I'll get there, and he'll beseech the Lord on their behalf, and everything will be fine. Well, the seven days comes and goes. Saul's army's slipping away, they're deserting, they're leaving. Saul makes a decision. He's going to make the offering and he's going to perform the sacrifice because we got to get this done so we can get out there and, and take on this Philistine army with God's blessing before my army's completely gone. So he does that. Just as he's finishing, Samuel shows up. And he tells Saul, what you've done is very foolish. You can't do that. You don't have the authority to do that. God told you not to do that. He told you to wait. I told you to wait, and you didn't wait. Because you've done that, the kingdom will not be yours forever. See, you can't disrespect God and get away with it no matter how you justify it, no matter how urgent the need is, no matter how many different ways you can convince yourself that you're doing the right thing, or maybe you just accept the fact you're doing the wrong thing for the right reason. God doesn't accept that. You know, when you're test, your test, when your faith is tested, it can come in little things. It can come in big things. Your faith can be tested over a whole series of things. You know, Saul's there with this volunteer army. <coughs> What's the test for him? to wait to wait till Samuel gets there to offer sacrifices and beseech God on their behalf just wait he just couldn't do it he had to make his own decision to do it his way so he did and what did Samuel tell him you're not going to have this kingdom forever Are you Saul? Am I Saul? When I'm challenged, do I do it my way or do I do it God's way? When it seems like the whole world is going in one direction, I'm not talking about the world in general. I'm talking about the religious world. Is going in one direction. What do we do? Do we stand strong? Or do we kind of not be so strong around the edges? Will we adapt and make changes to God's plan? Will you adapt and make changes to God's plan? You know, God's told us exactly how he wants us to worship him. Would you be willing to change that? Maybe for a good reason. You know, maybe if we just tweak our service a little bit, we can double our attendance. That'd have to be a good thing, right? Are you willing to do that? Is that something you find acceptable? Or maybe the option is to go someplace where they already have tweaked all the service things, and they have a more enjoyable service. Maybe they do things better. You know, it's more enthusiastic. I can really get into that. Maybe that's what it is. Are you willing to accept that? Saul was. Wasn't a big change. Wasn't a major issue. He just made the same offering Samuel was going to make, but you see, Saul wasn't a priest. He didn't have that authority. In fact, he'd been told not to do it. He did it anyway. God has told each of us how he intends for his worship service to be conducted. You cannot misunderstand it if you can read the Bible. And I know we've got some translations out now that have intentionally been dumbed down so that a uh, second or third grader can read them and understand them. Well, you can read the King James Version and understand what God intends for the worship service to be about. It's plain as day. All you got to do is read it. You can't miss it. Is it okay to add a few things to that? improve it maybe we can just change it a little bit and make it better maybe where God said that we're supposed to come together on the first day of the week to break bread you know it takes a long time so we're just not going to do it every first day of the week we're going to do it occasionally you know we'll, we'll catch it once a quarter be sure we do it on Easter and Christmas is that okay is aren't. What do you think God thinks about that? How far can we go in changing what God has told us to do for it to not be okay? If Saul had only sent half his army out to fight the Philistines after doing what he did, would that have made it okay? Well, of course not. He messed up, and God told him the kingdom's not going to be his forever. Because you see, God expects us to be faithful in everything. He expects us to not just follow him in the good times and in the big issues, but in the bad times and the little issues. That's what it really comes down to. It's a test of faith. How does your faith stack up? You know, I wonder sometimes. If we don't have a lot of Christians who view faith as a spiritual component of their life. And their faith really doesn't bleed over into non-spiritual issues you know I've got faith God's going to tell me how to conduct myself in the worship service he's going to lead me in making right decisions in church but I don't really have much faith in God helping me in my daily walk You know, those business decisions we got to make? No, I don't think God cares about that. He's not interested in all that stuff. He left me here to handle that on my own. And so we make our own decisions. We don't go to God in prayer about it. We don't demonstrate any faith concerning those decisions. And when they go sideways, what do we do? We go to God in prayer to straighten it out, don't we? Because now it's okay to get God involved. Because now I'm in trouble. Where was God when you were making the decisions to do those things to start with? Well, God doesn't care about my daily walk. He doesn't care about those kind of things. Those are temporal issues. You couldn't be farther from the truth. God cares about your entire walk in this life. And he wants it to be with him. And he wants you to have the faith to trust him in everything. Now, maybe... You think that he needs to help you with some big project or something. So you pray about it and you don't get the answer you want. Or you don't get it in the time frame you need. Isn't that what happened to Saul? I think, yeah, it seemed like it did. He thought the answer was coming in seven days and it didn't. So he did it on his own. Now, if you're going to have faith in God, let's put God in charge of our lives not just our spiritual life but our entire life put God in charge of what we're doing every day go to God in prayer about not just spiritual things not just big things when we're in trouble but in all those little things that come up all the time Go to God in prayer about your life and the way you live and then trust Him to take care of it. God is faithful. You trust God and He's going to bless you for it. Now, it may not be exactly the way you want. It may not be the way you had it in mind to be. But God's never going to fail you. If you'll just have faith, go to Him in prayer and trust Him. He's going to lead you in the path that you need to go. Don't walk away from God just because the issue is too little. God has time for this. Or because it's not related to church or religion, so he doesn't care about this. God has time for all the little stuff. He has time for all the big stuff. He's got time for you, if you'll just give him your time. That's the key. Will you give your time? Let's look at 1 Samuel 15 and 3. Now, remember, Saul's already made one mistake with uh, the Philistines. God granted him the victory in that. Samuel told him, God's not going to let you have your kingdom forever because of it, because it was a very foolish thing you did. Now we read, Now go and smite Amalek, and utterly destroy all that they have, and spare them not, but slay both man and woman, infant and suckling, oxen and sheep, camel and ass. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. 1 Samuel 15 and 17. And Samuel said, when thou wast little in thine own sight, was thou not made the head of the tribes of Israel? And the Lord anointed thee king over Israel. What has he just said to Saul? Remember that young man back there that was meek and humble and didn't really want to be king? That's the man God made king. That's the man who was anointed to be king. And look where you're at now. You make decisions based on the way you think God wants you to do it. That's what you do. Now you think for yourself. You want to tweak God's plan. You know, just a little tweak, just to make it better. Brethren, there is no place or time in the Old Testament or the New Testament where God tolerated making changes to his plan. Not one single time. You know, I thought about this last week when Sean was talking about giving Malachi, you know, Something Malachi told the Hebrews when they he was talking to them about what they were giving back to the Lord. He said, the Lord does not accept or recognize your sacrifices. He condemns them. And he condemns you for making them. God doesn't accept or recognize our improvements on his plan. He condemns them. And he condemns us for doing them. Do not fall into that trap. And Saul said to Samuel, Yea, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone out the way which the Lord had sent me, and I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. Verse 21. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the chief of things which should have been utterly destroyed, to sacrifice to God in Gilgal. We just made a little tweak. Everything's going to still be dead the way you want it. We've wiped them out. They're not going to exist anymore. We're just going to close it out with a big sacrificial ceremony to God to celebrate this deliverance. Just a little change. The end result's the same. Just the way we're getting there is a little bit different than what God said. Did God accept that? Does God ever accept those kind of changes? 15 and 22. And Samuel said, If the Lord is greater delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as is obeying the voice of the Lord. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to hearken than the fat of the rams. You decide you're going to accept changes in the way God intends for you to worship Him? You think He's going to accept your worship? Can you make a small enough change in the way God's asked us to worship him that he'll accept it? No, you can't. You're either going to do it the way God said or you're not. And if we don't do it the way God told us to, God's going to reject our worship and he's going to reject us for doing it. Don't let that happen to you. It's not hard to understand what God expects of us. Just do it. Just do it. Samuel goes on to talk about this a little bit. 15 and 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. How does that strike you? You're not going to do it the way God said? How does He look at it? Sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Just a little change for a good reason. Now, yeah, well, God doesn't see it that way. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord he hath also rejected thee from being king. Verse 26, And Samuel said unto Saul, I will not return with thee, for thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected thee from being king over Israel. And although Samuel loved Saul, he didn't go back and see him. 15 and 35 and Samuel came no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul and the Lord repented that he had made Saul king over Israel. So this great promising young man that had everything in the world going for him. God chose him, Samuel anointed him everything he touched God blessed with great success until he decided he could start doing just a little tweak here and there he could do a few things his way God still gave him the victory so maybe he concluded that God really not too upset about it so it got worse Until finally, he ends up completely destroying himself. You know, Saul reigned for 40 years. The first 20 years of his reign were the good times. Everything went well. But then Saul decided he could do his own thing. He could follow God his way, make the changes he thought were necessary for good reasons. the last 20 years of his reign and his life were spent as a bitter, angry, hateful, spiteful man as he did his best to track down David, which we read in 16 and 1, and the Lord said unto Samuel, how long wilt thou mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill thy horn with oil and go, and I will send thee to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided me a king among his sons. And of course we know that to be King David. So much promise at the start. So sad at the end. Everybody here starts out with a clean slate. When you obey the gospel, your sins are forgiven. You are walking a new life. You have a clean slate. Your faith ought to be buoyant. You ought to be happy. You ought to be looking forward to a life of service to God, faithfulness to him and what he's asked you to do and what he's asked me to do. And we ought to be looking forward to building and growing on that faith for the rest of our lives. Don't compromise that faith by choosing to do something that you think is good. That you justify in your own mind. But it's a change to what God has asked you to do. Because if you do, and you don't correct it, any of those sins can be corrected. All you got to do is confess them to God and repent. They're done. But if you don't, and you continue down that road, you're going to end up at the end of your days with questions, with concerns, with trepidation. All those emotions that you don't want to have, brethren, when you're on your deathbed. You don't want to be thinking about what if and what should. That's not where you want to be. You want to go to that time in your life with joy in your heart that you've made it. That that battle you've been fighting for your whole life is finally successfully concluded. That's the way you want to approach that day. And you can if you will just stay faithful to God. Because he's going to stay faithful to you no matter what. That concludes my remarks today. I trust you'll be able to use some of that in your life. I haven't really talked about first principles. But if you've been sufficiently taught and desire to obey the gospel and be baptized, the water's here and it's ready. It's even warm. I say that and I'd go over there and t- test it and it'll be cold. But it's supposed to be warm. Or maybe we can help you with some other issue in your life. Maybe we can help you with your walk with God whatever the case is we invite you to come as we stand and sing there's power